welcome to another magical Saturday stream. I am your host, Joe Magician, and today we'll be talking again about the house and a song of ice and fire and potentially house of the dragon that should be your favorite you may remember this because we're this is a i'm doing part two of last week's or three weeks ago stream talking about the blackwoods where i made the claim they should be your favorite and i still think they should be uh and they definitely are an underdog for characters in a house to watch out for for house of the dragon they they're gonna fill a lot of particular roles that are really not present in fire and blood unless you sort of think about them in a kind of like an abstract way but you know we're talking about the dead weirwoods we're talking about the only old god worshippers in the riverlands the people with the weirwood arrows the connections to the starks the connections to the targaryens the way they sort of keep popping up how the like the small parts of the blackwoods and how they interact with with the riverlands and the bra- sort of ends up being a a thematic way of looking at song of ice and fire as a whole that there's a lot of there's a lot in them more than just like cool characters that george is using them to tell a smaller version of the larger story he's trying to tell yeah so that's what we're gonna get into today a lot of good stuff there how's everybody doing this saturday how are you guys enjoying it's a little rainy here a bit of a bummer we're getting close to gardening season i'm gonna i'm gonna go full garth gardner again just go green hands and do all that stuff. I do have a second channel, Growing Strong, where I had been uploading stuff, although I kind of lost steam as the year went on. But gonna be redoing that. We're gonna start getting stuff going. Who we got in the chat here? We got uh Kraken Queen, JS Holgerson from Sweden. See Bob, what frequency is that? Oh, before the we did the intro, this will be cut off if you're listening to it later. I was talking about my mic problems. The frequency is at 120 hertz which makes it seem like there's an electrical problem. It's probably with the power supply from experiments I've been doing, but, you know, we'll try and figure it out. I do appreciate any help people have with trying to figure out weird hums and audio equipment because that's my current obsession at the moment. Other than the Blackwoods, of course, the Blackwoods take precedence. Karina Strick nearly missed you because I was listening to old Girls Gone Canon episodes. I'm glad you didn't, but of course, always listen to Girls Gone Canon episodes, especially since they're doing Samwell stuff right now. It's really good to hear Eliana and Chloe's takes on Samwell. They, I am often jealous of the insights they were able to come up with and how they were able to relate different characters and draw out the thematics and meanings of the story. They're so good at that stuff. Love Girls Gone Canon. Oh, hey, Sanrixian. Ooh, and Pat Doherty. We got the power couple in chat. Um... Sorry, no Damon Blackfire today. Well, a little bit of Damon Blackfire probably, but we're going to be focusing mostly on the conquest and the dance with the dragons. But if we have time, I would like to start to get into Aegon the Fourth and Melissa Blackwood and Bloodraven more and see how this sort of tells not just like tales of individual characters, but how it's a long term thing that George is doing with the Blackwoods that kind of all ties together in an interesting way. In particular, I found very very subtle but also interesting references to Bloodraven in the Dance of the Dragons. How he's less a an enigma or something strange that came out of a house Blackwood and more like just like the perfected version of the stuff that they do. Probably well, probably not a ground loop uh Bob, because I took one of the XLR cables and I stripped out the, the ground pin from it and and snipped the wire so it wouldn't come through and this hum is still coming through. So if it, it can't be going through the ground, if the ground is cut, you know, so I think it's a I think it's a problem 
with the preamp itself but you know i'm still trying to figure that out i'm going to try a few other things before i get into like actually trying to repair it like maybe drive buy a different power supply i'm sorry this is tech talk with joe magician where i'm talking about my audio problems while we're supposed to be talking about the blackwoods but yeah if you want to message me uh on like twitter or whatever i could definitely use the help i'm trying to get whatever i can nicola yurkin is night king of blackwood i think so i think if not the night king himself than the others i think the others are ancient blackwoods and starks who were basically the same thing at one point yeah i talked about that in a previous stream about the others and i talked about that in the last stream about the blackwoods the ancient blackwoods that i think their story of how they left the north and where they came from in the north really connects well to the others in a way that especially with just how involved with green seer magic they really are oh super chat here from lord joker five pounds oh thanks very much buddy tell us the tale of lord waymar royce in the shower not quite sure what that one means but thanks for the super chat also five dollars from danny mckay different message this week danny said black alley and the lads would make a great band name i agree the lads does that mean we might get a third blackwood episode Yes, I think I probably won't have time today to get to the current timeline. We're talking about Titus Blackwood and his children. Talk more about Beth of Blackwood and Egg and Duncan Egg and stuff like that. Because George, just keep, whenever he writes more about A Song of Ice and Fire, he finds a way of slipping in the uh, the Blackwoods in a bat in some weird way. They just continually show up. So I think we're probably going to do a third Blackwood episode. So there's a pretty good quote here that I think... We're, we're going to start off with uh, Lady Agnes Blackwood, and she has a really good quote here that kind of shows George doing a an interesting thing here with kind of foreshadowing the future of House Blackwood and kind of like sort of their magical prophetic nature to them, that this is the line that Lady Agnes delivers to uh, Harwin Hoare the king of the iron islands he said she says i have other sons raven sheree shall endure long after you and yours are cast down and destroyed your line shall end in blood and fire that's a weird thing to say especially because this was quite a long time before aegon ever stepped foot on westeros with his dragons lady agnes to sort of dropping a line about oh by the way you're gonna the targaryens are coming for you and that the Raven Tree Hall will exist long after House Whore. And that's like, what's going on, Agnes? Why do you ha actually know about this? Kind of strange. So I think where we'll pick up here last in the last stream, we were talking about the, um, oh, by the way, also make sure you slam the like button, do, share, do all the things that you normally do. Got 31 likes. We got some shirts to give away. So let's see here. 31 likes at 75. We'll give away another t-shirt for my threadless shop all you have to do is just slam the mf and like button also helps with the channel with making sure the algorithm points it to other people who know that you like the thing we'll do more promo stuff later the targaryen conquest so we're going to fast forward a bit from where we left off and that is the conquest of the riverlands by the by the ironborn so what we have here is that storm king the storm kings of house durandon had thrown overthrown the um, the river kings and they'd essentially annexed all the riverlands into the stormlands. So essentially what you get is if you look across, across Westeros, going from Iron Man Bay all the way over to Crackclaw Point and then down to the, Mar the Dornish Marches, basically is under the control of the Storm Kings of House Durandon at this time. They are the kings of the three kingdoms, I guess, at this point. 
by far and away the most powerful and most powerful king in Westeros before, you know, Aegon shows up and all this other stuff. But it had it had sort of created a problem with the uh, with their rule, because this is, again, the time before the dragons have showed up. So this is a quite a large bit of territory that the Durandans are trying to hold on to, especially since they conquered it. So it's not going to it's not going to it's not going to be that easy for them to hold on to everything. You know, everything's at the speed of ravens and horses. It's going to naturally lead to the Riverlanders eventually looking for opportunities to overthrow their new king or to break away from them. As many know, the Riverlands are notoriously hard to hang on to. They are quarrelsome folk who don't like anyone being their king except for themselves. It's like a constant thing where. One person rises up to be the king of the Riverlands. One of the other ones is going to try and pop up and take it from them. Oh, thank you for the uh, super sticker, Michael James. $3. Thank you, Bert. Thank you much. We very much appreciate the Agnes talking like she's blood of the dragon. Well, you know, the Blackwoods eventually do become that. So we so we have the per, a very particular Ironborn king. We have King Harwin Hor, otherwise known as the Hard Hand. This is Harren Hor's grandfather. He invades from the from the western land. He invades from the Iron Islands into the Riverlands and basically just starts raiding. He shows up with like a hundred longships and he's doing ironborn things, you know, taking salt wives and thralls, stealing from everybody, just doing his best to ironborn his way across the Riverlands. And rather than putting up a defense, the Riverlands, the Riverlanders are largely just holding up in their castles because you know, they're, they're just a bunch of ironborn. They're not going to be able to sack anything. They're going to raid and then eventually they'll go away. But also they had this, they kind of wanted to create strife in the Riverlands in general with the idea that they wanted to force Arik himself, Arik Durand and the Storm King, to show up with his army and fight against the uh, ironborn to quote unquote protect them, but also to hurt his his support and also to drain his military by having him fight a silly war against the Ironborn, which, as anybody knows, is a bad idea. Don't fight the Ironborn, especially on when they have the ability to get back into their boats and go back out to sea. Super chat from Lord Joker again. A two pounds. I know you're actually Alt-Shift-X. I am not. I have met him, and he is Australian, so very much not so, but thanks for the two pounds. But yeah, and they also had sort of a lack of cohesive identity. Each of the Riverlanders at this point sort of had this idea that they were kind of out for themselves. Like I said there, they're quarrelsome folk. They're all trying to become the next king of the rivers. And the way they think they can do that, again, is by letting Harwin Hor succeed enough in order to threaten Arik. This doesn't go super well, because as Harwin keeps going, he keeps amassing support. He, his warriors get experience, and then they start winning actual battles. In particular, they win one against Samuel Rivers, who's the bastard son of Tomwell, Tom and Tully. So many Tommins, so many Tullys. He raised a force to try and fight back. Harwin showed up and just completely destroyed this force and actually cut Samwell in half with the intention of sending one half of the body to both of his parents. What a nice guy from Harwin Hardhand. Way to go. Ironborn, as always, continue to suck. So what, we, what ends up happening here is that Harwin is succeeding too much. And he's actually starting to take things. He's starting to win battles. And the Blackwoods in particular, and as we talked about at the beginning, Lady Agnes Blackwood decides, okay, so we've had enough. We've had enough of uh, this whole Ironborn invasion thing. The Blackwoods, as we've said, are a powerful Riverlander house. They have 
a large amount of vassals. They have a large amount of military strength, and they're usually pretty good in combat from basically fighting against everyone around them all the time. She raises an army, and it looks like she's probably going to win just on her own. She has enough forces to break the Ironborn and send them running back to Iron Man Bay. Hara must have been a popular name back then. Yeah, kind of. I kind of like Brynden or Alisane. Actually, we're going to talk about that, where the name Black Alley comes from. It's kind of cool. However, so Agnes raises her army, and she's ready to fight the Ironborn. Lol, the Brackens. The Brackens show up. Lord Lothar Bracken. I don't know. Why are all Lothars in A Song of Ice and Fire the worst? Like, can you get a good character that's named Lothar who doesn't completely suck? Challenge for George. Write a character named Lothar who does not make me hate them. Especially because, like, I know the name Lothar from uh, Warcraft. He's one of the one of the primary good guys, especially back in, like, Warcraft 1 and 2, I think. Yes, please smash the like button. Would very much appreciate it. So Lord Lothar Bracken raises his troops and basically attacks the Blackwoods from behind when they're expecting the Ironborn in front. So you get the hammer and anvil effect. Just a total bloodbath of the Blackwoods. Agnes and her sons are captured by the Brackens and then handed over to Harwin Hor. Or Har, yeah, Harwin Hor. This does, it's not a cool thing. The Brackens suck. Fuck the Brackens. As always, hate them. What are you guys even doing? <laughs> that kind of thing. So this, the quote I read at the beginning is delivered from Agnes Blackwood to Harwin Hor, where he's essentially taunting her about how she, he's captured her sons, you know, this is going to be the end of the Blackwoods. And she throws back in his face, I have other sons. Raven Tree shall endure long after you and yours are cast down and destroyed. Your line shall end in blood and fire. Incredibly badass line. Harwin then counters because he's apparently tickled by the fact that she's such a, that she's standing up to him. It's like, hey, want to be my sex slave? I mean, salt wife, because that's what that term means. And... Uh, Agnes's response is, I would sooner have your sword inside me than your cock, which Harwin then obliges her and executes her. But I do really like this, the implication of this line here from Agnes Blackwood. At this time, if you look back at what the Targaryens are doing, this is largely, this is about 40 to 50 years before Aegon's conquest. Before, I don't think Aegon's even alive at this point. And the Targaryens and their dragons have been largely isolated on Dragonstone. They haven't been conquesting they haven't really been doing anything. They've been, you know, intermarrying with the Valarians, sometimes going out into the rest of Westeros, but largely being left on their own. So whoa. Agnes calling out that the whores will eventually be killed in fire and blood and that their line shall end is absolutely true. She absolutely nails it. In two generations, House Whore will end with Black Heron in fire and blood when Aegon roasts Tarrenhal. And this is sort of a long-term, like, background thing going on with the Blackwoods in that we know that when you have characters like Bloodraven that they are obviously magical right he is a the three-eyed crow he's connected to the children of the forest there's sort of the semi-implication that through their support of the old gods that they're and that their affinity with ravens that they are that they are a lot of the time probably skin changers and maybe there's more than one green seer coming out of house Blackwood but this just seems like straight up prophecy. This just seems like Agnes dropping a curse on House Whore and, or maybe seeing the future. It's really glaring when it sticks out this way. It must have been very cathartic when eventually House Whore is, is thrown down by Aegon and his dragons. But yeah, 
Lady Agnes Blackwood, Greenseer? Or was she getting weird dreams from the children of the forest? And this is a question I really like thinking about as you're reading about them and as you're exploring these different characters. Like, how many of them are being affected by children of the forest, the weirwoods, the green seers? Like, is, is Blood Raven going back in time and watching the history of his house and helping them and sending them dreams? Is there a current three-eyed crow somewhere beyond the wall that's doing this? I mean, they still worship the old gods. And they seemingly have a very tight connection with them. So it wouldn't be super surprising. And it's, I think it's fun to think about. And especially when you look at kind of like their successes and all these kind of things. I mean, this is a small quote. Maybe Agnes Blackwood is just kind of like saying this offhandedly. Like, oh, you're going to end in fire and blood. because Meaning like somebody's going to kill you in battle or something like that. But it's so... It's so on the nose. It's exactly what happens. I think it asks a really good question about how is Blood Raven an exceptional character or is he more like the rest of them? Maybe he just maybe maybe there's like a low level amount of like children of the forest magic and that stuff always hanging around the Blackwoods and Blood Raven just happened to take it to another level. Forget the Starks. The Blackwoods are the real family of wizards. I don't see any Starks dropping prophecies 50 years before they happen hey guilty undertaker let me see what's going on oh hey kartik prabhu late but made it hey how's it going that's right robert smiley lady agnes does have some badass dialogue it's a shame we won't see more of her although to be honest what happens to her is really uncool so it would be probably be hard to watch very interesting stuff and especially connecting to the last stream how i brought up the fact that a lot of people don't realize that bran himself is actually related to the blackwoods he's one of the last the blackwoods are one of the last families to have recently intermarried into the Starks before in like the last few generations. Because remember, this is this stuff is not happening that long ago. I believe, I forget which, I went back through the family tree and I already forgot which, which exact marriage it was, but I believe there was another one after Cregan. So there's some interesting stuff here. Yeah, Dorian Shame, there, there's definitely a weirdness to why they continue intermarrying. There's a lot of northern houses who fall in the old gods but the blackwoods are always seen as kind of like a premier marriage option for the starks even though they're exiled northern house yeah it's actually a good point there robert smiley <laughs> makes sense all women named agnes are witches they are kind of named like like witches and wizards but going back to specifically to agnes blackwood and harwin whore a fucking whoops there by the brackens this victory takes out one of the very big primary forces in the Riverlanders defense in the Blackwoods. They were, they're expected and are often used when they, when they join together as a, yeah, a primary military force. And now they're gone and the Brackens take advantage of this themselves, along with the Charltons, the Goodbrooks, the Pages and the Viprins all join Harwin Horror's cause to attack themselves, which is kind of a weird thing to do, but it, Okay, so we're going to go through this decision making and it kind of shows how the Brackens are continually messing things up. So the idea here is the Brackens b betray the Blackwoods and help out Harwin Hor because they want Harwin to fight against Storm King Arik. And then somehow from that, they will become independent. I don't quite understand this logic. Why would they ever think an ironborn king would do it? I, I don't think they really thought it through too hard. Because, of course, that's not what happens. Harwin uses his allies in the Riverlands. He ends up fighting King Arik at Fair Market and winning. And then, of course, what does the high on his victory Harwin Hor do? 
he annexes the Riverlands and declares himself the king of the rivers and the islands. So total backfire on the Brackens, their betrayal of the Black Witch, which probably seems super awesome at the time, you know, getting back at their rivals and, you know, they're setting themselves up by helping this Harwin guy. Maybe it's a future ally they can use to become king of the rivers themselves. Complete rake to the face. The Braxton's completely screwed up. And of course, Lord, Lord Lothar Bracken, the worst, is angry about this. His whole plan is up in smokes. He himself wanted to become the River King, and he wanted to use his buddy Harwin that he stole out the rest of his countrymen to to help him press his title to become you know, best buds. So what does uh, Lord Lothar do? He rises in rebellion. And of course, he is easily defeated. The hard hand takes out Lord Bracken and his vassals and then puts him in a crow cage where he ends up dying, starving to death. So way to go, buddy. Really, really fire, firing all, all cylinders there. This completely blew up in their face. Lord Bracken killed, hung in a crow cage, loses his sovereignty from one king to another, and just basically gets the, the Brackens killed. It's terrible. It's a bad, it's a bad plan. He shouldn't have done it. And, you know, because the Brackens continue to be the worst, as is tradition. They seem to be almost like the heel of Westeros, where anytime George wants somebody to do something crappy in the Riverlands, it's going to be the phrase or it's going to be the Brackens. Very, very common. Sideshow ball of Westeros. Uh, yeah, that's basically it. They keep taking rakes to the forehead. And this kind of continues the theme that we were talking about in the last stream of self-sabotage and the idea of these age-old rivalries that are the people who follow them completely screw themselves over as they cling to these like thousands of years past fights to they wear it like an identity and it totally subsumes them and it ends up screwing them over what's what's to come from the destruction of the riverlands with heron horror's conquest is like directly related to this rivalry of the brackens and the blackwoods had they not hated each other they would have easily repelled the Ironborn and sent them running back to Iron Man Bay. Instead, that stupid rivalry ends up getting them conquered for three for three different for for one king. Well, three different kings from House Hor end up ruling over them. You can literally trace all the suffering that happens later and from Black Heron to this decision by Lord Lothar to essentially stick a knife in the Blackwoods because he thinks it's a good idea at the time. Just don't do it. Let it go, man. <laughs> Let the rivalry go. And it's also kind of a larger thematic thing as we're looking at Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring whenever we get those. It's a lot of people are confused that why the the others are basically just sort of hanging back and just kind of pushing pressure on Westeros rather than launching a full invasion when it seems like they could at any time win. Like, what are they doing? Why are they letting humanity rally to their defense? And the truth is, well, it's the same thing here. All Harwin had to do was put pressure on the Riverlands, and then they ate themselves. They fought amongst each other, they turned on each other, and decided that they would use this enemy from the outside to hurt their rivals rather than join together and that kind of thing. You know, clearly humanity cannot stop fighting each other long enough to put up a defense. It's the same thing with the Brackens and the Blackwoods. It's the same thing on a larger scale. I mean, they did this in the show where Cersei literally makes this argument but i don't think that's gonna be a show only thing there probably will be people who essentially see a sort of profit <laughs> in letting the others wash over their enemies for them or at least uh, maybe Dan danny's invasion 
possibly also Aegon's invasion. Well, uh, Young Griff's invasion. That they're going to be people who think that th there's going to be something they can old rivalries to be enacted and profit to be had by letting these invaders do crappy things. Also seems to be a primary factor in the Andal invasion that why were the first men unable to take out the Andals who basically had nothing when they showed up and seemingly just continued to conquer their way across Westeros? Well, if you look back at the history, the first men were not united at all. They only became united once threat became massive and then they started trying to fight back in mass but it was largely like a hundred different petty kings a bunch of different chieftains who didn't think of themselves as a cohesive unit but rather a an entire continent of rivals they were fighting against and that's largely how the andals split them and that's what the ironborn did here to the riverlanders yeah kieran grant that's a, that's a good description of the brackets it's like i will identify the good decision over here and i'm going the other way they consistently do that. So what we have here is Harwin Hor secures control over the Riverlands, although he gets start, stalled out in his conquest because, as I said, the Riverlanders are quarrelsome folk and they don't like being ruled over by anybody. It's it, Trying to rule over the Riverlands is a bit like herding cats. And that's basically what he spends the rest of his life doing. He's putting down rebellions. He's trying to solve problems between his new vassals. He's trying to get them in line. And it's just like kind of not working. That just becomes the rest of his life. His son Halicor becomes new king, sucks at it, and his reign ends three years after it starts. Way to go, Halic. So his son, uh, Heron, Heronhor, otherwise later known as Heron the Black, becomes king of the, king of the islands and rivers in 42 years before conquest. And Heron the Black aggressively sucks. <laughs> he demands massive tributes from all his vassals. And those that refuse his tributes just get completely screwed over by the Ironborn. Executions, captives, raids, all that other kind of stuff. He's one of the biggest tyrants we've ever heard of in Westeros. Completely ruthless. Kills people. Throws them into um, servitude at a whim. Really not a good guy. And he stole all this money. He took everything he could from two whole kingdoms. Because he decided that the king of the isles and the rivers needed a more permanent holding all this time the um, the whores had been living out of fair market in a tower and they've been using that as their base of operations because the idea was well their home was really back in the iron islands this was just kind of like their military outpost to try and rule from but it wasn't very grand they hadn't stolen any castles from anybody so heron decides he's going to build a massive castle it'll be the greatest one in restoros and it will be the crown jewel of this new kingdom they his grandfather had forged as we all know he named it after himself Aaron Hall yeah this by the way I've talked about this before but this is part of the reason that anyone that gets Aaron Hall can't support it Aaron built it by essentially bankrupting two kingdoms and the people that are given Aaron Hall especially during the Targaryen era are not given two kingdoms they are barely given any vassals it's like up jumped knights who are expected to effectively fund and have maintenance over a castle the size of a city like the targaryens would have trouble manning and maintaining Aaron Hall. there's no way a random up jump knight or minor lords can be able to do it fun stuff from black heron he also cut down weirwoods to help build it using them as rafters and beams 
hey, the old god showing up here again. When you combine this with Agnes Blackwood's, I don't prophecy, maybe it seems like maybe Black Heron drew the wrath of the old gods into perhaps leading to his downfall. Because I think George talked about this in one of his Targaryen Thursday posts, or actually, I think it's Raya Golden who posts them, but it's information from George where they talked about how Aegon specifically invaded Westeros because he saw the others coming and he wanted to unite them to get ready for their invasion. I'm not saying that the Children of the Forest and the, and the Green Seers invited Aegon to conquer Westeros to help them get rid of Heron the Black, who had cut down a bunch of Weirwoods and messed with the Blackwoods, but I'm not saying that's not a part of it, <laughs> that he had essentially put up a unholy castle on the shores of the god's eye next to the isle of faces they definitely can send dreams they definitely do mess with people's brains it would be kind of fascinating if that was part of the process for how Aegon ended up getting the idea that he was the prince that was promised and that he would be the one to defeat the others if it had something to do with heron's heresies basically food for thought there Especially because the Blackwoods seem to be connected to them. But anyway. Oh yeah, 60 likes, 15 more. We've got 93 people watching. Hey everybody, 15 more. We'll give away another t-shirt. Uh, so slam that MFN like button if you would like to get your own ass waffle gear. The one thing to keep in mind, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, is that when we're talking about Fire and Blood and the World of Ice and Fire, where a lot of this information comes from, the impact of magic and fantasy in the old gods is largely ignored because the maesters who are writing them don't think it's real. But of course, we know it is real and George knows it's real. So you have to remember that during all of this, the success of the Blackwoods, the weird things they say, the, the things that happen to characters who do bad things to Weirwoods and their followers, you have to keep in mind that there are green seers, there are children in the forest who have interest in defending themselves and their and their followers so to sort of keep that in the back of your brain that you know there's these are old god worshipers and they probably a lot of them are skin changers like we see from the starks with their wolves and that there may be green seers among them that are not recorded in the history but if we got a deeper look you can imagine george would put them up there much the same as you see from what the house strong with what's her name alice rivers another alice the witch queen of heron hall you can sort of think of the rave, the Blackwoods as the like witch lords of Raven Tree Hall. That's sort of a, a better way of thinking about them. Oh, Morley with the $50 super chat. Thank you so much, Mora. Just a show of love and support. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Mora. Always crushing it. And you know, Blood Raven did not come from nowhere. He is not and a he was not born into a random house and all of a sudden he's the most powerful green seer in generations. Like he comes from the Blackwoods. He comes from a house that is heavily associated with these things. And it's kind of a, a long-running theme for George that he really loves the idea of these sort of magical outsiders who are secretly powerful and are undermining the normal members of society. It's a, a classic plot line. He puts it into tons of his books and stories. He really likes writing about these sort of weird underdog characters who don't fit in but end up being hugely important. That's sort of a fairly standard nerd fantasy or people who are outsiders in their society that the things that make them different also make them exceptional. And the Blackwoods are kind of the prime example of that. They are weird. They don't fit in. They are very strange in the Riverlands, and yet they continue to be a massive force 
and George keeps writing them into plots over and over and over again. See, Bob, a Game of Thrones show fan or Joe Magician show fan? Both. Love them both. So do the Starks get warging from the Blackwoods? I do, I do wonder if the Starks got some of their warging powers when they took the Daughters of the War King. That if it's a, if it's a genetic thing, that maybe they were sometimes wargs, but then they became wargs on a big level after stealing the war king's daughters and essentially inheriting his that kind of thing in the future. That would not be surprising to me because the Starks are the kings of winter. They're not the war kings, right? Kind of strange. <laughs> Blood Raven got a double dose. Blackwood and Targaryen. Yeah, something like that. So let's get to Aegon and his dragons. So we have Harrenhor. He's ruling over the Riverlands. He's a terrible tyrant. Everyone hates him. So we have a similar invasion here to the invasion of Harwin Hardhand. The Riverlanders, again, don't like their current king and Black Heron, and they see Aegon and his sisters as an opportunity to get rid of Black Heron. They don't have the opportunity, they don't have the ability internally to effectively overthrow him, but maybe with the help of the Targaryens and their dragons, they could find a way of getting rid of him. Now, the Blackwoods themselves are not the first to join Aegon's side against Black Heron. Seems likely that the Blackwoods remember the recent history of helping a foreign invader trying to overthrow a king you don't like, which what happened with the Brackens, that it did not pay off, that, you know, they trusted another conqueror to help them lose a crappy king and ended up being screwed over by it. There's also a detail here that the Blackwoods and Brackens had recently fought a pretty big civil war over some, probably some hill or a barn or something like that, like they normally do. So as Aegon is invading, both of the two houses, which are normally major powerhouses within the region are totally depleted. They don't really have as many, well, not totally, but compared to what they normally are, they are definitely lower than they normally would be. They're, they would be like, they wouldn't be like the, the Lord Paramount, they'd be, they'd be close, kind of like the Boltons or the Reigns, or they were extremely major vassals who recently fucked each other up. Did it, uh, from Alice Kennedy, did Blackwoods marry into the Tullys? If they did, it could be the reason the current generation are all wargs. I don't remember exactly the Tully family tree. There's a lot of gaps in the Blackwood one, but I wouldn't be shocked. They have a thing for doing power marriages, so could be. Seabob uh, says, what do you think of the idea that the Blackwoods were sent by the Starks to guard the broken weirwood that potentially did the hammer of waters? It would seem a little strange because the story that the Blackwoods tell is that they were exiled, that they were run out of their lands. I, that would seem a little weird if they were lying about their own history, if they were basically like, oh no, we're, we're on a secret ops mission to guard this dead weirwood for some reason. I mean, especially since we're told the Brackens are the one that killed the weirwood. So essentially flying what we know. It sounds like a cool idea, but I, I don't really know where you would find evidence for that. It would essentially be like, all history is wrong for this cool idea, I guess, which sometimes makes for good theories. So one of the first lords to take up for Aegon the Conqueror's cause is Lord Edmund Tully. And he eventually... The rest of the Riverlanders eventually join up with Aegon after it becomes clear that, you know, he's actually has a good chance of winning, particularly after they smoke the Durandans. It becomes clear that Heron's probably not going to survive, that the, the dragons are probably going to kill everybody. So they a lot of them start switching sides, including the Blackwoods eventually. Heron also had a pretty bad habit of taking lots of captives and brutally punishing dissent against him. So it's quite likely that the reason that the Blackwoods were later in joining Aegon's cause is that they were kind of in a precarious military position and political power as, you know, they didn't want to be the vanguard against Heron because 
they were not in a position to actually defend themselves from him. Whereas you see like the Tullys, they were actually much further down, I guess, in the power org chart. So um, there was a lot of room for them to go up and they weren't recently reeling from a war. I agree with Teflon TV, heard the theory on Indeep's and dreams of Targaryen's kill Heron. I have not heard that previously from them. Seems reasonable. Usually a good thing when you agree with smart people. Or at least it's fun tinfoil. I don't know if it's true, but I think it's fun. It's fun to think about. And if you really want to get into the idea that the children are behind everything, that would be one of the places to look. It, it really does benefit the Blackwoods in particular and perhaps the children in a revenge way to kick Heron out of his seat. But you never know. So what happens after Aegon's conquest? Black Heron is obviously roasted alive with all his sons in Heron Hall. And you would think that this would mean that the Blackwoods would probably be near the top of the list to be named new lord paramounts of the riverlands you know they're traditionally an extremely powerful house militarily politically they have been kings of the rivers before they are highly respected they're powerful warriors they have this weird mystic side to them that seems to attract targaryens in later years but it doesn't end up happening they get passed over and the riverlands are instead granted to the tullys largely for their service in joining Aegon the Conqueror early on. Aegon had a habit of rewarding people, the first people to join him, rather than basically just handing power back to the people he conquered. When he could, he liked to empower the people who helped him the most, basically. Yeah, keep slamming that like button, guys. And, you know, that, that makes good sense. That's a good way to create new allies in a place that you're trying to invade and conquer and rule over. You're going to need houses to support. You can't just show up and roast everybody all the time, which we saw in Dorne. It doesn't really work. He needs to rule over them, not just kill everybody. And, you know, I guess it kind of makes sense. The Blackwoods are kind of depowered at the moment. And, you know, given the history of rebellions in the Riverlands, it's possible that they may not be able to keep their vassals in line. But I actually think this point is maybe a little wrong as depicted in uh, the World of Ice and Fire, where this is talked about, because it's also noted that the Tullys, even at their full strength, basically, after taking out Hair and the Black, are still less powerful than the Blackwoods. Even with their recent losses from their war with the Brackens, the Blackwoods still field more soldiers, more knights. They still have more money. They still have more power. So if the problem is that the Blackwoods wouldn't be able to rule over the Riverlands, then the problem is true for the Tullys as well. You know, it's, it's a problem that exists for both houses. So I don't think that one, I don't think that one makes a lot of sense. Oh, we got to 75. All right, hang on a second. Let me load up Nightbot and we'll get this one going. Thanks everybody for slamming that like button. All right, let's do a giveaway here. We'll do a keyword, keyword Raven. So type in chat the word Raven. If you want to win a free t-shirt from my Threadless shop, obviously we have the ass waffle stuff. We have my two logos and you know, can get yourself a very fluffy blanket if you like mostly just a t-shirt but it's 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 a gift certificate so you could buy whatever you want with just like a 20 dollars discount so yeah type raven <laughs> your coffee mug matches my shirt perfect that's what we like to see love to see it you think Aegon would have had a better chance of gaining dorn into the seven kings if he had told them about the prophecy i guess my dreams only do it doesn't count yeah it would just made him look crazy i think the problem with Aegon is that he was basically just mimicking what valeria did to the roinar and the roinar have a long his long memory so I don't think they're going to be like, uh, he, he was going about it the totally wrong way. Um, trying to do the most traumatic thing that happened to their people in their entire history to them again is really not going to win them over. 
And that's sort of Aegon's problem there. He's the sort of guy that he has a hammer and everything is nails to him. He has dragons. He's going to use them on everything. So it's 2.59 on my clock. So we'll roll this at 3.05. So five or yeah, five minutes from now. If anybody's on delay, you have five minutes to type Raven in chat. And then we're going to go ahead and give something away. So somebody in the chat talked about said this earlier. I was about to get to this, but we just hit 75. So. I think one of the main reasons is that, well, there's a, I think there's a few actual reasons that Aegon named the Tullys as his Lord Paramount that don't have to do with their ability, like their military or political power, because the Tullys were not at the top of the pile in the Riverlands, basically. For one thing is that it makes the House Tully totally dependent on the crown for support, that they are not powerful enough to actively challenge the, the crown on their own, that it, it, it basically makes them into like if there's an internal war in the Riverlands, the Tullys will not be able to win it on their own. Um, they may not even have the allies, but they will have the backing of the crown. So that gets them in a in sort of a place of, of long term power over the Tullys that they will not be able to break away because they don't have the ability. They will not launch a rebellion basically ever, or at least not for a long time. It'll take generations before they have secured power enough that they could actually challenge the dragons and maybe never could and this is sort of uh, we talked about this with history of westeros and aziz on the valyrians where the dragon lords did not the dragon lords of the freehold did not empower their colonies or their vassals basically they made them entirely dependent on homeland valyria for defense and economics like each city was given over to a particular industry and it was an industry that only supported the freehold <clears throat> and it's and it wouldn't work without them. They also weren't allowed their own dragons. If they needed defense, they largely had to ask Valyria for it, especially with uh, like if the Dothraki came uh, knocking or Sarnor or anybody else. So it was a way of the freehold to make sure that nobody else really could ever challenge them from within. And I think that's kind of what Aegon was doing here too. The Tullys are a good choice for that. Sounds like the Tyrells in the Reach. Exactly. The Tyrells are the other perfect example here where the Tyrells in normal circumstances probably would have been immediately overthrown by one by probably the High Towers or you're looking at maybe the Tarleys, one of the other powerful Reach Lords. But they can't because they have the backing of Aegon and his dragons. So that's largely how the Tyrells got to their power position by using the stabilization and the alliance back to the crown to do it. But I think there's another sneaky reason why Aegon the Conqueror would not want to name the Blackwoods as his Lord Paramount. And that has to do with their religion. They are old god worshippers. They do not follow the faith of the seven. Aegon, uh, upon his conquest of Westeros, immediately faced a huge problem with the faith of the seven. That they were, the faith is actually the real power in Westeros after taking out the Durandans. It's sort of the Reach and it's sort of the Gardeners, but the faith has a lot of sway no matter what kingdom we're talking about, Aegon recognized that and had to try very quickly to sway them to his side. So he converts, his sisters convert, they give up the Valyrian religion, they don't give up the incest nor the polygamy right away, but it's very important that they not piss off the faith any more than they do. Then he needs to find ways of making sure they're happy. And one of the ways to piss off the faith of the seven especially in the Riverlands, would be to ma be making your Lord Paramount 
of one of the major parts of Westeros, an old god worshiper in the Blackwoods. That would not go over well. It's the kind of thing that would probably lead to holy wars and rebellion, especially because not in normal times. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem to have been a problem for the Blackwoods in the past, but it would now because Aegon's conquest had kind of really stirred up a lot of religious fervor. There's a lot of talk coming from Old Town. There's a lot of talk from the High Septons about how the invaders were demons and how they were evil and they were going to destroy Westeros and their way of life, that kind of stuff. So he needs to do something to make sure they're happy. Maybe later the Blackwoods could be made paramount of the Riverlands, but not now. This is the time of maximum religious strife, which eventually boils over with Magor choosing between Joe and March Madness. Yeah, sorry about that. I don't, I don't watch that much basketball, but I understand it's a big part of people's lives right now, especially with the Song of Madness. I haven't been following that from Davos's fingers this year because it just kind of, the whole process just kind of annoys me. People just get like super opinionated and factioned and they start like fighting with each other over who their favorite characters are and making like assumptions about like the quality of your character because you don't like this character. And it's like, ah, I just don't want to deal with it this year. It's been fun in the past, but it's gotten very, very, very high strung, I guess is the way to say it. And I just don't, I don't want a part of that. All right, let's go ahead and roll this one. We got 15 eligible people for the, to win themselves a t-shirt. If last call to type Raven in chat, if you want to win one with the stream catch up. But yeah, so I, I think that's one of the very sneaky reasons why Aegon didn't do it. Obviously, he's not going to unseat the Starks from the north and replace them with a Faith of the Seven person, because who would you even do? There's no Faith of the Seven in the north except for the Manderleys, and they're never going to turn on the Starks. But yeah, you wouldn't put a new old god ruler in control. So I, I think that's a major reason why the Blackwoods got passed over, and they probably realized it too. It's like, yeah, this makes sense. I mean, we're a natural choice to become the new Lord Paramount, but I, we understand why Aegon can't, but... You know, they're wise people, they're they're knowledgeable, so I'm guessing they sort of figured it out. All right, here we go. Rolling. Hey, JS Holgerson. Oh, you, sir. Good stream to join. <laughs> you got yourself a free t-shirt. So what you have to do is you can send me an email at askjoemagician at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Twitter, and I'll go ahead and send you your code, and you can go to my third list shop and pick up whatever you want. So we'll do the next one. We got 84 likes, 92 watching. So if we get to 100 likes, we'll do another one. I had a good chance. Next, maybe you'll win the next one. Gaming with this guy. And that's largely where the Blackwoods kind of disappear for quite a while in the story. They don't have much to do from what we can tell from about Aegon's conquest up until about King Viserys. So about 100 years, they sort of disappear from the narrative. There is sort of a, a weird mention of them in that Queen Alysanne Targaryen mentions to Alaric Stark of the North that she knows that there are a bunch of houses in the South that still keep to the old gods. Hang on, where's the back of this thing? Okay, got it. And obviously the Blackwoods are one of them, although they're not really a secret, but there is sort of this weird fascination that Alysanne has with the old gods and sort of the magic of the North and the Weirwoods and their worshippers. Like we see that Alysanne seems to really like the North and that she goes and visits the Night's Watch and she sees like the Night Fort and she sees the wall and all this stuff. So I'm not really sure what's going on there with Alysanne, why she has this fascination with old gods worshippers, but she seems to. Oh, let me let me type that out for you. There you go. Send it there. Side note, Black Alley, who we're going to talk about in a little bit, is very likely named after good Queen Alysanne. There's an explosion of characters after Alysanne's reign where they're all named after her. Tons of them all across Westeros becomes a popular name after her, which doesn't actually usually happen with Targaryens. 
uh, a lot of characters don't a lot of houses do not name their children after uh, Targaryen kings. Alysanne seems to be one of the exceptions. Tons of people named Alysanne. I haven't read the books in years, but I don't remember Targaryens or anyone from Valyria ever being really religious. So the the Targaryens and the Freehold were a very tolerant religious empire, I guess. There there wasn't like a state religion like there is the faith in Westeros. They allowed all sorts of faiths, but there definitely were fervent religions within the Freehold. In particular, places like Kohor the, was founded by a religious cult, basically, as is, uh, what's the other one? Where the Bearded Priests, hang on a second, is also a theocratic city that comes from uh, the Freehold. So there definitely were religions within, within Valyrian society, but it wasn't really a thing among the 40 families and Targaryens that they were super big believers, which is part of the reason that, like, they sort of saw themselves as the gods, if you if you can understand that. So what do you need gods for when you're magical fire wizards with dragons like they are? Yeah, just the phrase. The phrase seemed to like using the names. Of the <coughs> Ooh, need some water. Seemed to like using the names of dragons, but not many other houses do it. Alisane, though, tons of them named after her. That is going to be your brief lesson on Valyrian religion. They, the, the gods they had, they named after their dragons. So it was, a, it was a way of worshiping themselves, basically. It seems like after Aegon's conquest that the Blackwoods largely stayed out of conflicts. They didn't seem, we didn't hear much about any wars they were in. And most of the wars at this time would have had to do with the Faith of the Seven, which obviously the Blackwoods wouldn't really have a, a dog in that fight. From what we understand, the Tullys supported Magor and then later opposed him. There's no hint that the Blackwoods did anything different from their overlords, so I guess you can assume they had some sort of say in the Magor civil wars, but there no name characters, nothing big happens there. Yeah, Norvos and their bells. So the next time the Blackwoods show up is the Great Council of 101. This is when their political power seems to start becoming a thing that people care about again in Westeros. They pop up. I'm probably going to do a future content about the Great Council of 101, especially because it has so much to do with House of the Dragon. But among the candidates that were put forward, the Blackwoods are one of those that supported Laenor Valarion, along with the Starks, most of the North, the Brands, and the Valarians. Curious how that happens. The faction that supported Rhaenys, the queen that never was, and Laenor and Lena ends up becoming the black faction during the Dance of the Dragons. All the houses are here except for the Baratheons, who break off for personal reasons against Rhaenyra, but otherwise are it's essentially the pro-Valyrian faction, I guess, or the anti-Faith of the Seven faction. All the Valyrians gave up the Valyrian religion, basically, but there it does seem that it's like the Andals versus the First Men and the Valyrians in terms of when you break down who's on what side. And the Blackwoods, along with most of the North and the Starks, make up the First Men contingent that are all pulling for Laenor Valarian. And so, yeah, it ends up holding true even through to Rhaenyra. That for some reason, this whole power group ends up sticking together. Obviously, Laenor does not win the Great Council of 101 for various reasons. And it goes to who becomes King Viserys I. You know, bummer there, their preferred candidate lost but the blackwoods apparently did not take it personally they decided okay well viserys is king now so we're gonna go ahead and stick by his side which is kind of unusual the same thing happens with the starks where even though they did not want viserys for king they take their oaths and their loyalty to viserys very seriously as you may remember that 
Viserys at one point summoned all of his vassals to court, or as many of them as he could, and made them swear one by one to honor Rhaenyra's claim to the Iron Throne. And all of them said yes, and a bunch of them broke their word. But the weird thing is that it's the other faction that did that. The faction that all voted for Laenor are the exact same ones that stay loyal to Viserys, even though they voted effectively against that line. It's kind of interesting to parse why that happened and why they did that. It may just be sort of a thing that the that followers of the old gods basically take their oaths very seriously, that um, kind of like a Night's Watch thing, where breaking your word is dishonorable and like an affront to their gods in, in a way. So maybe that's why they stuck by them. But it's kind of it's kind of interesting to think about. And they definitely don't seem to mind that Viserys is now king and that Rhaenyra will come after him because we get to the first named character of the House of the Dragon area for the Blackwoods, and that is Samwell Blackwood. As a young man, he had been one of the many suitors for Queen Rhaenyra's hand. She did her whole tour thing where she was like trying to find suitors, but actually wasn't. She had no intention of marrying any of these guys. It seems just like a long, like a year long ego trip for Rhaenyra where she just wanted to have as many powerful people out in Westeros dote over her and hit on her and try and do all that stuff. And she was never going to go for it. When you look back at it at the time, she basically was only interested in either Kristen Cole, her uncle Damon, or eventually Harwin Strong. That was it. Those were the people she wanted. She just sort of seemed to enjoy letting all these dudes fight for her. Bravos, tolerates all her religions. Yes, they do. That is true. And what we get with Samuel Blackwood is he actually ended up fighting a duel for Rhaenyra's hand. He fights against uh, Amos Bracken, who later also becomes Lord of House Bracken, which Samuel loses. But of course, it doesn't mean anything because neither of them were going to get Rhaenyra's hand anyway. So it's essentially a pointless fight that Rhaenyra causes, which ends up becoming a big deal later in the house in the Dance of the Dragons. Again, this kind of feels like the whole thing with Lothar Bracken and Agnes Blackwood, where it's like a pointless piece of, of drama between them that ends up becoming a huge deal. The fact that Samuel and Amos essentially duel over Rhaenyra and it ends up totally screwing over different factions within the within the Dance of the Dragons. And it's kind of characteristic for Rhaenyra to accidentally create chaos in her wake just kind of like feeding her own ego that's sort of her thing I wonder if Viserys made them swear an oath in front of a heart tree i i don't think there are no heart trees in king's landing so i doubt that happened but you know the the northmen from what we see and old god followers in general do take their words very seriously oath breaker oath breaking is a huge thing in their culture so i don't even think that needs to be in front of a heart tree it's like a primary send to them so that that could be why it seems like it's kind of a, a commentary on the on their culture in general, that even though they would rather have Lenor versus Vis they swore to honor Rhaenyra, so that takes precedence over their their preferred candidate, I guess. Which Riverlands house is the strongest? Well, it depends when you're talking about. Before Aegon's conquest, it probably would have been the Blackwoods, the Brackens, or it probably would have been between the two of them. The previous strongest houses have been taken out by the Storm Kings and then the House whore. They would have been near the top. Yeah, the Tullys were not near the top. They only became most powerful because of the conquest and being rewarded by Aegon. There's also a possibility that maybe old god factions went against Aegon II during the Dance of the Dragons because he was aligned with the High Towers and the Faith of the Seven, I guess. And they also probably could have been like angling for alliances, you know, 
trying to make themselves the primary allies of a new ruler who might do more to help them gain power and influence. Like if Lenor became king, he obviously would help out the people who supported him. They that makes sense. That that's a very common reason for supporting a new claimant to the throne. Same thing could have happened with them deciding to honor Rhaenyra, that they possibly thought that maybe by, by helping her out there would have been royal marriages in the future, or they would have been given the Riverlands or maybe parts of the black or the bracken lands that they think are theirs that kind of thing so it could be that it could be just kind of like a cynical power move by them but it's weird because all of them do it <laughs> they all in one block they all vote for Lenor, and then they all follow rhaenyra very strange how that happens you can also again wonder if this is perhaps the influence of the children of the forest and three-eyed crows and things like that that maybe they wanted to see rainies in power or then rhaenyra in power or something like that that's the confusing backdrop to all of this like when you have the entirety of all the first men all god followers in westeros going for one faction and then another it's not unreasonable to ask if that's somehow connected to their literally real gods who can influence their decisions and their dreams is there a real world real world historical parallel to the blackwoods i would not know real world real world history well enough to help you with that one I'm sure there are smart people in the chat that could, though. Not my, not my thing. I don't know them that well. I don't know history that well, especially not if we're talking about, like, feudal and medieval England. Obviously, the Dance of the Dragons breaks out for many, many reasons, which will be probably a future video thing. And everyone has to start picking their sides really quickly. Are you for Rhaenyra's side and the Blacks? Or are you for Aegon's side and the Greens? Samuel Blackwood, who's now the Lord of House Blackwood, decides that he's going to keep his word that he swore to King Viserys to defend Rhaenyra and joins her faction, even though she spurned him and that he lost a duel for her hand. Very easily could see how he would have motivations to, and to instead side with the Greens. Make the internal argument that, like, I don't like Rhaenyra. I don't like that I got denied her hand. I don't like that this duel happened and I lost it and it's all for her. Instead, he goes the other way and says, no, we're sticking. I'm sticking my word. We're sticking by Rhaenyra. Show something of his character, I suppose. I remember so much of Song of Ice and Fire history. Well, I research it before the stream. I don't remember this off the top of my hand. I spent yesterday and today writing a whole outline that I'm reading from. But uh, thank you, though. I do. I, I like to think I have a good memory, but you never know. It also helps that, of course, the Brackens instantly declare for Aegon II. So makes a clear point for the Blackwoods to go like, well, you know, screw the Brackens, we're going for Rhaenyra too. So it's usually a, uh, those kind of decisions are not so simple. It, George makes it easy by making the Brackens go for Aegon, so it works out. And Samwell instantly jumps on the opportunity, calling the Brackens traitors, and forms up his troops and his knights and goes raising through the Bracken lands. He sacks, he steals, he burns, he kills people. He essentially pulls like a Gregor Clegane impression throughout the Bracken lands. Definitely not angry over losing that duel to Amos Bracken. Definitely not. Not a thing. He's probably not even thinking about that as he effectively goes scorched earth on the Bracken lands. Definitely not. Nothing to it. These stupid childhood rivalries make a mess of things. What ends up happening is the Brackens and Amos Bracken say, can't do that. Can't have you destroying our land. So he ends up forming up his troops. They go to counterattack and they get, there's this pivotal battle called the Battle of the Burning Mill. Most of the Blackwood and Bracken fights are like this. It's like 
not over anything impressive. It's like that mill we fought over a thousand times or that that hill over there. They're all like this. This is probably like the 150th battle of the burning mill, that kind of thing. Sam will fight each other in the middle of combat again in a thematic resonance to later scions of the house, Bloodraven and Bittersteel. And Bittersteel, the two of them duel in single combat. Samwell loses again and is killed in combat. Wah, wah. Rip Samwell Blackwood, we barely knew ye. But don't worry, there's immediate revenge. Immediate. His sister, Alisane Blackwood, otherwise known as Black Alley, takes immediate revenge, firing a weirwood arrow and killing Amos stone dead right there in the middle of the battle. Alley, Black Alley, the total badass. This is her introduction to the story. She's 16 years old. She sees her brother die in combat to the Amos Black. And what does she do? She pulls out a weirwood arrow and kills him on the spot. Unbelievable. Amazing stuff. 10 out of 10. Love Allie. That's the kind of stuff you see from like Arya or like, it's, it's just incredible. Way to go, Black Alley. War of the Five Kings, the only time the Black and the Blackwoods fought on the same side, only for a little while. It does happen sometimes where they fight on the same side, but they, they often will split very quickly or they'll betray each other and switch to the other side. Yeah. One shot, one kill. Precision shot. <laughs> amazing, amazing stuff from Black Alley. Love her. So what happens next? So Samwell's dead. Who's taking over House Blackwood? Well, of course, it's his 11-year-old son, Benjakot Blackwood. If we're talking about characters that you should be excited for in House of the Dragon, if it's not Black Alley who you should be excited to, ben Benjakot Blackwood is the other character you should be excited to see. He is a major force in the dance of the dragons he's a pivotal character in the military history of this war the political history of the war the aftermath everything that happens with the riverlands from here on out basically revolves around benjakot and black alley and also their well, red rob rivers although he ends i think he dies a little bit he dies uh a lot younger than the other two but it's this power triumvirate of the blackwoods that ends up being a huge force in the Dance of the Dragons. Love Benjakot, 10 out of 10. But he, he kind of does not get a very strong introduction. He's 11 years old, and he's now a child ruler of House Blackwood in the middle of a giant civil war. You can be forgiven for thinking, wow, the Blackwoods are screwed. This is, they're done. This is going to be it. A child ruler in the middle of a giant civil war of dragons they should just get out of the war now because they're not going to be able to pull it off. Instead, Benjakot just sort of steps up to the plate and really takes the defense of the Riverlands and the Blackwoods and a real trial by fire, like not metaphorically, literally a trial by fire. Benjakot becomes a maybe the most famous lord of the Blackwood. But you, try to imagine it from his side. And this is one of the things I think that's going to make him really interesting in House of the Dragon. Imagine you're basically a child and you're being forced to become the leader of a major house and you have to navigate this complicated, destructive war with dragons flying overhead and everyone around you possibly becoming an enemy. And you suddenly are responsible for not just yourself, but, you know, your whole family, all your all your holdings, all your vassals, all the people in your castle. This is a huge stress being put on Benjakot and one that's really unfair. Oh, wait, never mind. We don't have to imagine this plot. We have definitely seen this before. 
George has written about this exact plot. This is the plot of Jon Snow at the Wall. This is the plot of Rob Stark taking over the Lord of Winterfell. And it's very likely to be some part of Bran Stark's story going forward. This is the exact same thing. We have, an, we have a tall, slender, sh uh, shy, sensitive young lordling who's being shoved into a war that they have no part in starting and they have to try and navigate it perfectly or end up losing everything. He's also known for being a, a fierce warrior and an incredible commander at a young age. Again, wow, this is Rob Stark and Jon Snow, isn't it? This is the same story. Unsurprisingly, George likes writing what seems like draft versions of the stuff he's already written. He likes reusing kind of character archetypes and plots and seems Ben Jacot fits the fits the bill there. And then you have to describe Ben Jacot as an idiot savant. Well, maybe that's how you describe uh, John too at a certain point. Yeah. Ben Jacot's in the chat. Love a Ben Jacot. And I think that's one of the reasons, well, I'll get into this a little bit more, but I think those resonances and the kind of character he is, especially the idea that he's shy and sensitive, he's tall and slender. Those are the exact descriptions of Jon Snow when we first meet him. Also Waymar Royce, but that's beside the point. So very, very interesting stuff here from George. And you can see that if you look at it from that kind of meta perspective, that he's telling you from the first time you meet Ben Jacot in Fire and Blood, that this kid is going to have a very important plot line that you're supposed to be thinking of these other major characters, which works out pretty well. Although one thing we know about Ben Jacot is that he did not have to rule on his own, basically. As we previously mentioned, his aunt, Black Alley Blackwood, is she's formidable and she's a warrior and a great bowman but she's also only 16 years old so there's basically between the two of them there seems to be sort of like a power sharing idea here with between Allie and ben jacott and as i said uh red rob rivers who we're gonna talk about in a second seems to be sort of like almost a council among the blackwoods where they're all relying on each other to try to fill the role that should be basically one lord it's like an alliance of the family. Oh, yes. Yeah, slam that like button at 100 likes. We'll throw on a hat for the rest of the stream and we'll give away another T-shirt. So thank you for reminding me, Ion Trone. And I think that's one thing that'll be especially good when we learn more information about them. When House of the Dragon eventually gets to the war in the Riverlands and the Blackwoods, that it will be very much the three of them growing up together. The three of them having to step up to this responsibility that none of them are ready for. and each one trying to compliment each other as they move through this war and try to survive it. And I definitely think that although when you read Fire and Blood in the World of Ice and Fire, Ben Jacot gets most of the, the praise for the actions of the Blackwoods during this war, I think it's quite clear that Black Alley and Red Rob Rivers should be getting equal shares, that it's, it's closer to like Aegon and his sisters than just Ben Jacot's one-man show especially because he's only 12 years old. And to talk about the other member of this sort of triumvirate of the Blackwoods, we have Red Rob Rivers, which sounds like George made it as a tongue twister just to screw with us. He's known as the best archer in Westeros by reputation, basically like the Arthur Dane of his age in terms of like shooting arrows, I guess. He also commanded a group of 300 archers. Hey, look, it's the Raven's Teeth. Weird how that happens. And he's largely known for being an incredible warrior and badass. Like I just mentioned, it seems like Red Rod Rivers is supposed to be extremely reminiscent of a character like Blood Raven or Theon Greyjoy, maybe Jon Snow a little bit. You know, the Blackwoods tend to have this tradition. They keep the northern tradition of not being ashamed of their bastards, of not exiling them, that 
they take them and make them a part of the family and make them an important part of especially military actions. And that seems to have happened here. Rob Rivers is not, you know, sent to the Night's Watch. He's not sent to live with his mother off in some, some random place. He's made a part of the family and the military structure in a way that seems like he was probably a mentor for Benjikot in particular in helping him learn to rule. We don't really know what his exact relationship is to the rest of the family. It's not clear whose bastard he is. Is he a bastard of Samwell? Is he Samwell's brother? Was he Samwell's bastard uncle or something like that? It's kind of unclear, but this is a character that very much could get a lot of screen time along with Benjikot and, and Black Alley as sort of playing like almost a Brendan Rivers role. I mean, a Brendan, sorry, a Brendan Tully role. Sort of the grizzled old veteran that's helping his family member who's suddenly thrust into power learn how to navigate it and how to fight this war. Because obviously Benjikot doesn't. He's, he's a child. He's basically, he's almost, he's only a preteen or a tween, I guess you would call him. He needs help. Red Rob Rivers is there to help. Yeah, uh, good call, Guilty Undertaker. I wonder if we see something similar from the Starks where Bran is crowned, but Sansa, Arya, and Jon are just as responsible. Bran definitely has a leg up becoming a god, basically. And he'll have magical powers that Benjikot never had. But I think it's definitely the case that, you know, no one rules alone. And especially the case with child rulers. So we're going to make, I'm going to make more comparison to those characters in a little bit. But I think you're thinking along the right idea that when you're looking at the Blackwoods, especially during Fire and Blood and the Dance of the Dragons and House of the Dragon, you should be seeing the Stark characters. I think that's definitely intentional, that the the way they interact with each other and the way they support each other seems right on the nose. I don't know if the Blackwoods have like a phrase, kind of like the lone wolf dies with the pack survives, but maybe they do. And maybe we'll see more of that. Oh, we hit 100. All right, let's let's go ahead and throw this one on. Hang on a second. Wizard at time. Uh, throwing this baby on there. All right, so let's do another giveaway. A keyword. That's shading my face way too hard. I don't have all my lights on today. I only have the one. Let's let's see here. What word should we use? Type Weirwood in chat. Thank you guys for slamming the MF and like button. Really appreciate it. Uh, there you go. Type Weirwood in chat if you want to go ahead and win something. Hang on a second. I'm just going to check PayPal real fast. I forget to do that while I'm streaming. Nope, nothing there. So it's 338. So at 345, we'll go ahead and roll, see who else can win themselves their own ass waffle gear. It is a it is a comfy hat. And it gets more comfy to wear the longer my hair gets. Because it doesn't slip down my forehead as much. Weirwood. Weirwood. Not weirwood. What are you doing? Unbelievable. Yeah, so I think uh, Rob Rivers will definitely play that role. Theon, Brendan Tully, maybe Benjen Stark, that kind of thing where Benjakon and Allie are going to need basically an adult in the room. And it seems like Rob Rivers fills that role. He also fills that role because much like other characters who are tutors in some way to the young characters, he does end up dying long before them. Seems to be the, the way things go with George. The only way to include a mentor is to make sure that they die shortly after. So despite Benjakon's age and inexperience, and apparently that he got drunk and passed out which also hey john does that i wonder if george is trying to mention trying to draw further comparison to him wow benjikot's like john also like rob but you know that's how it goes benjikot very quickly becomes a key part of the war supported obviously by alisane and rob rivers and he gets the nickname bloody ben cool nickname great love it good stuff george he is forced to fight in the battle of the lake shore at 12 years old 
otherwise known as fish feed. One of the biggest slaughters in the Dance of the Dragons. Completely ridiculous battle. It's very likely it's something we're going to see in House of the Dragon as a battle set piece. And it's an important part of the dance to depict because it's kind of a turning point for the for the black side in terms of making sure that the Western lands is neutralized and unable to do anything. So what ends up happening is that the Western men are coming to meet up with the green. They end up running into the, 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 the blacks at the God's eye with the Northern forces at this point are being led by Lord Roderick Dustin, otherwise known as Roddy, the ruin leading the winter wolves who have come to fight for queen Rhaenyra. If you don't remember the, the winter wolves, they're a, a force of older troops that Lord Cregan Stark sends ahead of his main troops. He holds them back for quite a long time. They're kind of the old men of the North. They're the veterans and they're sort of sent to Cregan had promised with his alliance with Rhaenyra that he would send troops, but he didn't want to send all of them early. And that's kind of a Northern thing that they tend to send their, their veterans and their old men to go die first, the Greybeards. And you see this with Stannis where a lot of the guys that join his side are the old men of the hill, the hill, the hill clans like Hugo Wool. Uh, you also see that with the what's their name, the Umbers, the Umber uncles. You know that that's this is sort of a thing in Northern culture. Yeah, Roderick the Ruin is a badass. He has some great lines. Actually, I'm just gonna read some here. It's pretty awesome. The first line we hear from Roderick the Ruin when he's asked what he's doing here, he says, "We have come to die for the Dragon Queen." Whoa, Roderick. Very similar if you go well, um, where he says that, you know, he wants to die with Bolton blood on his lips and that, you know, he wants to die in battle and that kind of thing. Very much George drawn a comparison between Roddy and the guys that are the old men of the North that are now running around and helping out take down the Boltons. Kind of interesting comparison, because if you think of them that way, sort of makes the case that Aegon and the Green faction are kind of like the Boltons. Curious. Let me bathe in Bolton blood before I die. Yeah, that's it. Very much so. I would love to see this part of the Northern Army. This is not a, a big part of it that we saw. The whole interactions with the wolves and Stannis' men and like the internal fights is kind of left off page for a large part. But it, the Winter Wolves should be a reintroduction of that in House of the Dragon if it gets to this point. This will probably be like season two or three, probably. And then the other quote is, this happens later. Roderick says it to Kristen Cole before the butcher's ball. This is what he says. That's why we come. Winter's here. Time for us to go. No better way to die than sword in hand. Before participating in the other most bloody battle in the entire of the Dance of the Dragons, Roderick the Rune and the Winter Wolves are there to kill as many people as they can before they die. And that's what happens at Fish Feed or the battle at the lake shore, depending on which way you call it. It's a horrific, horrific slaughter. Thousands of troops die on both sides. The Westerman troops essentially get surrounded around the edge of the God's Eye and pushed into it by the Winter Wolves and the Riverlanders, and they basically kill everybody. Everybody dies. It's called fish feed because the corpses are left in the water to feed the fishes. That's basically what ends up happening. It's an it will be horrific to see the level of death and destruction that's off the chain. And we have a description here, and it's focused particularly on Benjakot and how the 12-year-old new lord of, of Blackwood of Raven Tree Hall felt about it. Attacked from three sides, the Westermen were driven back but foot by foot into the waters of the God's Eye. 
Hundreds died there, cut down whilst fighting in the reeds. Hundreds more drowned as they tried to flee. By nightfall, 2,000 men were dead. Amongst them, many notables, including Lord Frey, Lord Lefford, Lord Bigglestone, Lord Charlton, Lord Swift, Lord Rain, Sir Clarence Craycall, and Sir Tyler Hill, the bastard of Lannisport. The Lannister host was shattered and slaughtered, but at such cost that young Ben Blackwood, the boy lord of Lord of, of the boy lord of Raventree, wept when he saw the heaps of the dead. The most grievous losses were suffered by the Northmen, for the winter wolves had begged the honor of leading the attack and had charged five times into the ranks of the Lannister spears. More than two thirds of the men who had ridden who had ridden south with Lord Dustin were dead or wounded. Unbelievable. Great description from George. It's when they eventually get to this Battle of the Lakeshore, it's going to be one of the highlights of the show, especially if you enjoy the, the battle sequences from Game of Thrones. I mean, they have Miguel Sapochnik. They have, they will not be shying away from battles, and this will be one of the primary ones. Described well by George, too, what exactly happens there. So, but especially the idea that Benjamin Blackwood, even though they won, breaks down and starts crying looking at the heaps of bodies of the dead and having to live through this at such a young age. You know, it's the theme from A Feast for Crows of, you know, the broken men and how war is terrible even when you win is very alive and well in a character like Benjakot. You know, this is the moment that breaks many of the Riverlanders' hearts and Benjakot basically for the rest of his life. At 12 years old, he's he's no longer, he's being forced to grow up in a horrific horrific way you will no longer have a normal childhood it's the same thing you see with the stark children how cold and how distant they have become how their hearts have hardened from the mass slaughter they've seen Arya in particular but also Jon Snow Rob Stark does the same thing where it's horrifying to think about and it's it's the kind of plot that you imagine that House of the Dragon would want to explore through Benjakot. I wonder if we'll see something with the coming Battle of Ice, most likely Battle at Winterfell, or we're not going to see the battle at the Crofter's Village, probably on the page, but we probably will see the, the sack of Winterfell uh, taking it back from the Boltons. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine that, Kieran. Yeah, 30 troops, 30 Marines and soldiers, 2,000 dead is an unimaginable figure, no matter the age, but it's especially harsh. And I think George is communicating that through Benjakot, that even though he becomes Bloody Ben and a hero of this war and a major figure in Westeros, it clearly has a tremendous traumatic effect on the young boy and who he ends up, who he grows up to become. Yeah, George loves writing about the, uh, the cost of war, even on those, even on the winning side. It's usually lost on the individual soldier because their side won, but, you know, they went through an unbelievable amount of trauma and tragedy to get there. Yeah. He's taught, he talks about that a lot, honestly, in um, Dying of the Light. So, and the actually other ones like the road, let's take it and stuff like that. Makes me depressed to think about, but we're probably going to see that they'd be foolish not to. And then obviously we get back to the whole triumvirate thing, Benjakot, Alisane and Rob, they continue to make their presence known throughout the rest of the war. They end up turning themselves into a guerrilla force in the Riverlands they use their archers and kind of lightning tactics to make any force that enters the Riverlands basically a disaster. That they make it so hostile that in large part the war kind of shifts to being in the reach. The only people that really end up going to the Riverlands after this are dragon riders and then eventually Kristen Cole at Butcher's Ball. But they sort of take the, the rest, the greens take the lesson well 
that Ben Jacot Alisane and Rob Rivers are leading such an effective disruptive campaign that going into the Riverlands is death. That it's a stupid idea and you shouldn't do it, which makes it even funnier that Kristen Cole does. Yeah, Shades of the Brotherhood Without Banners, definitely. I think you can see through the actions of the Blackwoods and their leading of the war that the Brotherhood Without Banners is actually like the natural state of the Riverlands in war. That after the knights all crash into each other and split apart, the rest of the, the Riverlands essentially goes into survival and guerrilla mode. And I think it's also shades of kind of like the and all and first man invasions and also the first men versus the children of the forest that you can make the case that what the Blackwoods do after fish feed and all the way up to Butcher's Ball and the other conflicts within the Riverlands is basically what it would probably be like trying to fight the children of the forest that they hide in their trees, they do what the Brotherhood Without Banners does, you know, hiding in their hollow hills underneath the weirwoods. They use a lot of hit-and-run tactics. They use a lot of bows rather than fighting in lines with knights and, like, charging at each other. They do end up doing that, the Blackwoods do, and especially Benjikot, but they sort of just turn the Riverlands into an impossible place to try and invade without taking mass casualties. And then, of course, we get to the lads that Danny McKay mentioned earlier. So the lads are Benjikot Blackwood and then Kermit and Oscar Tully. They become the young rulers and heroes of the Riverlands throughout the war, largely using these guerrilla tactics and attacking from the trees in the shadows. The, the lads ended up winning tons of victories and killing many famous knights and invading forces, turning them back and running from these these teenagers who are unexpectedly winning against hardened warriors and it ends up being just kind of a strategy they end up doing we see this a lot with with Kristen cole's invasion of the riverlands when he's trying to get to harrenhal and there's stories of how people are being sniped off all the time and they're always afraid of the woods because they don't know when the next strike is coming from this is what they're doing they developed their strategy to basically whittle down the invading the invading forces and then pick their battle to actually go ahead and wipe them out totally. And you can see that Blood Raven sort of does the same thing. We can see that at, during the Mystery Night, where he figures out using intelligence and his ability to wear glamours, basically, to figure out where he needs to strike and where his army needs to be to fight to win an overwhelming victory. And that's basically what the Blackwoods do here. So he's not really an innovator of that strategy, but more a master of it, that it's a long-term Blackwood strategy, that this is one of the reasons that they become, that they are such an effective military force within the Riverlands. This is really hard to beat. It's not good for conquest, but it's really good for defense. And that's what the Blackwoods end up doing. Yeah, for some reason, George does like naming the Tullys after uh, Muppet characters. I don't really know why he does it. I think it just amuses him. Oscar, Grey, yeah, all of them loves the Muppets in-house toy for some reason. Maybe there's a meta commentary in there for you. So after after this, we see that Benjikot leads the Riverlanders along with the lads into multiple battles that usually go pretty well for them. They take place in both battles of the Tumbleton. They take place in the Battle of the King's Road. And Benjikot, at this point, with all of his many victories, and his rising military prowess known as Bloody Ben, he's often put front and center in the armies. He's either getting command or he's put it right at the center with the rest of his troops. The Blackwood troops be, end up becoming like the premier fighting force for the, for the Blacks throughout the Dance of the Dragons, at least until the Starks show up. They're the ones 
that while the dragons are dancing and everyone else is fighting, they they make up the backbone of their force along with the winter wolves. Yeah, and as along with this bloody Ben unexpectedly becomes kind of like a folk hero along with Black Alley and Red Rob, which we were talking about this earlier. Guilty Undertaker picked up on where this is what I was going with this. It's perhaps foreshadowing for the Starks that this may be what ends up happening with John, Arya, Sansa, Bran in the Winds of Winter into a Dream of Spring that especially for John's post-resurrection campaign against the others, where his upward trajectory from kind of like a young nobody who nobody really cares about to being perhaps a war hero may be resonant here with Ben Jacot and Black Alley and Red Rob, that this is kind of what George is planning to do with the Starks. It would make a lot of sense. It seems like there's very similar setups here. It seems like the characters are similar in character and what they're going through, their emotional journeys. Eventually what ends up happening here is Cregan Stark arrives with the rest of his army. I'm glossing over a lot of the Dance of the Dragons because we're really just focusing on the Blackwood part of it. Cregan arrives to support the rest of, with the rest of the Northern Army, basically, to reinforce the Winter Wolves. And instantly, Bloody Ben and the lads hand over command of, the, of their forces to, Lord of the Winter, to the Lord of Winterfell. Again, maybe foreshadowing in some way that John is ends up leading a resistance but ends up giving up his power to the Lord of Winterfell and maybe someone like Bran which actually ends up being very important for Lord Cregan because the invading Stark forces are gain immediate credibility and popularity by having Bloody Ben and the lads and his and Black Alley and Red Rob well I think Red Rob Red Rob's probably dead at this point but Black Alley being pushed behind them because as we see in A Song of Ice and Fire proper the Northmen are not seen too highly by the South. They're sort of seen as like savages from the North, kind of sort of see like how the Northerners see the wildlings or how basically everyone sees the Ironborn. They don't have a good reputation when they come South. They tend to kill and raid and steal and do all the horrible things invading armies do. But by allying with Bloody Ben and the Blackwood resistance, it ends up making Lord Cregan seem like a reinforcing hero rather than another invader it's very important for oh i forgot to do the drawing oh my god i'm sorry i forgot to do this oh wait danny mckay you won again Ooh, may do another one since you won so recently sorry about that i totally forgot to do that that is my bad let's see here yeah i think we're gonna re-roll it there we go i don't think you've won one have you sarah i hope not not that many people entered that one so i don't really have it set up to like exclude previous winners or maybe i'll just give it to both of you i don't really know we'll figure it out i don't know what do you guys think what do, uh, what do you guys want to do with this? You want me to roll another one or do you guys want to keep your prizes? Okay. Not sure what Danny thinks. I'll wait to see what he says in the chat before I do anything. Yeah, I should buy some lotto tickets today. That's an important part of Lord Cregan showing up in for the Hour of the Wolf and gaining popularity. There's also a really cool scene that during the Battle of Tumbleton, Ben Jacot has... Can you give yours to Guilty Undertaker? You sure can. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Guilty Undertaker, if you want to message me, I'll, I'll go ahead and send you a, a free thing. A free t-shirt. Has Guilty Undertaker never won anything? Is that true? He's been here all the time. I would be surprised if he didn't. Yeah, so the, the death of the dragon, Tessarion. Tessarion is already injured, and Benjakot orders one of his crack archers, Billy Burley, to shoot the arrows through the eye. Kind of interesting that George is bringing this up again, that archers are going to be able to take down dragons, shoot them through the eye. Black Alley already used the Weirwood Arrow to kill, with the Weirwood Arrow to kill... Amos Bracken. We have another instance here of Tessarion dying by arrow fire to the eye. Maybe that's how Viserion will go. 
maybe someone you'll shoot him through the eye and will be raised into undeath or something like that. Kind of interesting to think about. That'll be another cool scene to see. There will be a lot of dragon deaths in the House of the Dragon, but it's interesting that the Blackwoods, again, are going to be on the on the side of somebody killing the dragons. Like, obviously, symbolically, the death of Damon Blackfire and his sons by Brynden and his raven's teeth are basically basically the same thing. The weirwood arrows being shot to take down dragons. So there's definitely people that think that Theon may kill a dragon, that he may, with his bowman skills or something like that. I would be shocked if by the end of Song of Ice and Fire that one of Danny's dragons does not die by arrows through the eye. It seems like George is setting that up pretty hard. Also, I want to talk a bit about Black Alley here. Black Alley is also another, will be another major character probably when she shows up with eventually in House of the Dragon. Her description is kind of different from how George describes his normal characters. And we're going to, I'm going to talk about why in a second. He describes her as a lean, tall creature. A lean, tall creature was this wench, thin as a whip and flat chested as a boy, but long of leg and strong of arm with a mane of thick black curls that tumbled down past her waist when loosened. And uh, Cregan Stark says that she smells of wood smoke, not fires. So who does Black Alley remind us of? Well, she's a warrior herself. She's an expert archer. She's more at home at the battlefield in hunting than she is being a, a traditional lady within Westerosi society. She's nothing like Sansa, basically. And she has a sharp mind, a good mind for warfare and battle. Boy, does this sound familiar. That's right. This is Arya Stark grown up. This is probably if Arya did not get diverted to the House of Black and White, if she had ended up fighting the whole way through the War of the Five Kings, Black Alley is Arya. It's, I think it's very clear that's who you're supposed to think of. Lyanna Stark, a bit somewhere between Arya and Lyanna. You can e easily, easily imagine that Black Alley is how George imagines Arya would be like a grown-up if they had been allowed to continue down their normal path of life before being diverted by dragon princes doing stupid shit. Like, for instance, one thing that definitely comes to mind, it's been suggested for a long time in the fandom that the um, attraction between Gendry and Arya may pay off with Arya marrying Gendry if he's named Lord of the Stormlands. That almost happens in the show, but Arya turns him down. But that's basically what happens to Black Alley. She's married off to Cregan Stark at the end of the Dance of the Dragons, the huge war, and it ends up being done not out of, like, for affection. She doesn't really seem to feel much for Cregan Stark. They just met. Cregan obviously really likes her, but it's done more to secure the alliance with the North and also to secure pardons for people at the end of it. Yeah, Asha's a good one. Brienne, too. But I think Arya's definitely one on the nose if you're thinking about Starks here. It's myself and others have long said that we think that parts of Fire and Blood, especially the Dance of the Dragons, are sort of like George writing a rough draft of what's going to happen in the Winds of Winter and a Dream of Spring. And seeing Black Alley as Arya just seems like straight on the nose. I would not be surprised to see this. Yeah, Asha Greyjoy is also a good call too. And that's this goes into another reason that, especially going to House of the Dragon, these, these characters won't show up in season one most likely. The Blackwoods only really start becoming a thing after the war starts up proper. And I'm guessing from what we've seen so far from like promos and stuff like that, you know, they haven't cast these characters. They've been casting the characters that are basically in the lead up to the war itself. Like I'm guessing season one will end with the 
with the war actually starting. And we're going to see a lot of preamble. She is also related to Black Alley. That's true. They are distantly related. But yes, that is very much true that Arya and Black Alley, or that's, it's like her great, great, great granddaughter or something like that, like four or five generations. These will, these characters will largely be probably season two or three, but they should make for very popular and well-liked parts of House of the Dragon when they make it in the show. And I think the main reason is that when you read Fire and Blood, the Starks are largely off the page, right? Regan Stark shows up with the very much at the beginning with the alliance between him and Rhaenyra being sealed with the Pact of Ice and Fire. And then he largely disappears until the end of it when he shows up, as we were talking about, to reinforce the forces to take take that King's Landing, the Hour of the Wolf, <clears throat> Hour of the Wolf and stuff like that. So we're not going to see a lot of the Starks, but you can definitely see how... If you were writing the show, you could use these Blackwood characters who are very clearly written to be highly suggestive of popular Stark characters. I mean, you're talking about John, you're talking about Arya and Rob and even Theon. We're talking about some of the most popular characters from Game of Thrones. It would make a lot of sense to when they show up to put a lot of effort into putting them onto the screen. And yeah, there's their prime stand in for that kind of that kind of appeal. And also they're going to be the ones that are probably going to be the primary POV characters when the war starts shifting towards the Riverlands. Like which characters is the camera going to follow around as we're coming up to fish feed, as we're talking about butcher's ball as with the guerrilla warfare going on throughout the Riverlands. These are the obvious characters. If you're looking, Benjakot, Alisane, and Rob Rivers makes perfect sense. They can also sort of play a Brotherhood Without Banners role, that kind of thing. I don't think they have to be like exact one for one. Like, I don't think you need to cast somebody for Benjakot that looks like Kit Harrington, And you don't need to have him be exactly the same. But it makes a lot of sense to play them up because they're obviously such popular character archetypes and the way that they interact with the story. And, you know, one of the prime complaints that people have with the Dance of the Dragons is they, you often hear the thing, it's like, well, everybody sucks. There's no one to root for. Everybody's terrible by the end of it. And it's like, I disagree. The Blackwoods in the Dance of the Dragons never suck. They are ostensibly the, you could see them as sort of like almost protagonists. They don't do anything wrong. They don't do, they basically don't do anything immoral. They're, they're fighting a defensive war for themselves. They're young characters who are going through horrible times, but they're not causing any of them. They're like popular folk hero types. They're likable characters. Like the, these are these are the likable characters in House of the Dragon. They will be, or they should be. So I think I think I finally answered the question a little bit of why they should be your favorite house. Well, because House of the Dragon, they probably will be among the most popular. Expect to see Benjakot and Black Alley stands out there and Rob, Red Rob Rivers. Like their casting will be pretty interesting for who they choose. They're basically going to have to hold an entire part of the story on their own. I mean, we'll see how far they end up expanding it out. If it really just stays focused on the Dragon Lords themselves. If it stays focused on Rhaenyra's court and Aegon's court and more around King's Landing. But that really falls apart after um, not that far into the Dance of the Dragons that the action spreads to the rest of Westeros. And they'll be... Um, primary people to do that through there's also one thing that will probably make them get a lot bigger role in house of the dragon than than i think people realize is that there's not really a good sense throughout fire and blood about what's going on with the magical side of the world you know a big part of game of thrones is obviously 
the others, the children of the forest, the green seers, the weirwoods, prophecy and all that kind of stuff. Those are largely absent from the narrative of fire and blood. And yet we know that they're not. We know from <laughs> reading A Song of Ice and Fire, we know from seeing different characters that the idea that he's choosing the Blackwoods and that they are so obviously associated with these things should make it that they are the obvious targets to inject some of the fantasy into House of the Dragon beyond the the dragons and the fire magic and stuff like that. It'd be weird if they went through all of House of the Dragon and basically just ignore them entirely considering how big a role in Song of Ice and Fire it plays. So these are definitely the primary characters. It'd be interesting if even if they sort of cast Mira, I mean, if they cast Benjikot and, and Black Alley to sort of remind you of Mira and Jojen. Like those may be the the exact archetype characters and how they're acted at first. So th- that would be my guess that it will be sort of like somewhere between like John and Arya and Mira and Jojen and Bran a little bit too. If that sounds exciting to you, it's exciting to me too. And that, that's the kind of thing I really want to see because I think that's one of the one of the main good criticisms of Game of Thrones, the TV show, is that. Dan and Dave did not really want to engage with the magic side too much and the fantasy side and that they were sort of forced to because that's where the story's going. If they had their their choice, it would be more like the movie that I think it was Benioff wrote Troy, where they took the he took a mythological story and then made it just sort of a war story with the gods and the fantasy and the magic largely removed from it. That's sort of what it seemed like they were trying to do with Game of Thrones. This is an opportunity for someone like Ryan Condal and his writing staff to sort of fix that. Use the Blackwoods as the vehicle for putting a lot of the fantasy and wonder back into the story beyond just what what they're going to do with the dragons and um, like dragon dreams and stuff like that. There should be the children of the forest side to it. Melissa Blackwood says, Fire and Blood was written by Archmaster Gildane, so he would have tried to minimize magic exactly. He definitely would have. George does not. And he seems really happy with what Condal and uh, Miguel Shapochnik and uh, their writing team are doing, at least from his blog post. So I would guess that they have a good sense of where they need to put back in the, the old god magic and weirdness into the story. And again, Benjikot, Black Alley, Rob Rivers, perfect characters to do it with ready made basically to do it i think that's one of the fun things about going back and reading fire and blood and looking at these characters it's like the same thing with the strongs that i really like about them is because of the limited narrative limited pov and the biases of the fictional writer that's putting the pen to page essentially in fire and blood that allows you to kind of see if you can use a song of ice and fire as a map to try and figure out where george is doing similar things but not explicitly putting it on the page. Sorry about the cough. And of course, where does their story end? What ends up happening to Black Alley, Benjikot, and uh, Red Rob? Well, Red Rob probably dies during one of the battles of Tumbleton. We don't really know what happens to Benjikot in particular. He does get married at some point, I guess, and I think he has children. He lives to a long age. He does not die in combat. Way to go, Benjikot. He ends up being an important part of Westerosi politics after this happens. He sort of kind of steps into the role of Corlys Velaryon, where he's this famous war hero type of figure. Well, Corlys is not a war hero, but it's his fame and his quality of character that makes him uh, such a powerful lord. Well, of course, his money too, but Benjikot sort of does kind of a similar thing. Black Alley, she marries Cregan Stark 
as basically payment for pardons. She doesn't really seem to be that into Cregan Stark. There's even an implication that she may be more into women than men. With There's a member of House Frey that she's apparently very close with. But, you know, they, they, don't, have a ro- they don't have a long romance or anything like that. Like, Cregan proposes it and Black Alleys is kind of like, I guess if I have to. And that's, and that's what ends up happening with them. They do end up having four children, and all of the members of House Stark we know now are descendant from Black Alley Blackwood. So that's a fun little connection there. Something to think about. Um, yeah, Red Rob probably dies during one of, the, uh, one of the battles, and that's sort of the end of him. And that's probably about where we'll finish for today. Or I guess we're going to do part three. We're going to come back again for more of the Blackwoods, because... My next thing I have on my outline that we're not going to get to because we're already over by about 20 minutes is Missy Blackwood and Blood Raven and how it ends up being George is really telling a long term story with the Blackwoods and the Brackens that the story of their family and how they're interacting with the Targaryens and how they're interacting with Westerosi politics and the old gods and stuff like that is not just about those particular characters. It's not just about Benjakot and Ali and Rob. It's not just about Melissa Blackwood and Bloodraven. There's a, which is unusual for a lot of the houses that George writes about, that there's a long-term plot that he's using them to tell, which seems to mirror not only the Targaryens and the Starks, but kind of have its own thing. That the, obviously through Bloodraven, he has made a member of House Blackwood one of the most important characters in his books. And that, that I don't think that can be undersold, and I think it's worth it exploring as we've done how that continues to manifest through the different characters during same as much as i'm excited about season one of house of the dragon much more excited for season two because of characters like ali ben alice cregan and sarah snow definitely they're going to be great alice rivers is going to be an awesome one too very much in the mold of the blackwoods i wouldn't be surprised if like they make alice rivers a bastard of the strongs in the blackwoods that would make total sense yeah sabatha Frey. fantasy and fantasy series would be a great idea yeah i imagine ryan condal's gonna do that it would be kind of be kind of silly not to yeah i also agree guilty undertaker the most interesting characters in the dance aren't the targaryens strongs and blackwoods are the ones to look out for those are the ones i'm most interested in about blackwoods are so awesome the story can't be told in two episodes it would be shocking if it was. It's not like Titus Blackwood and it's not like his children who like show up in snips throughout most of A Song of Ice and Fire and then really come on the page in A Dance with Dragons when Jamie shows up to broker the peace and this kind of disappear. Benjica and Allie and Reb Rob are such integral parts of the Dance of the Dragons, particularly as it the war spirals out from King's Landing and stops being about the dragons and more about the individual kingdoms fighting each other, that it would be a tremendous oversight to not uh, make them important secondary characters to the narrative. Also, yes, I agree with, I always agree with Guilty Undertaker for some reason. I, I agree with the take you just put there that House of Dragon could improve on the book by really expanding these secondary characters. Because yeah, the the narrative that Gildane talks about is really focused on the court politics but george is is also clearly hinting that there's a wealth of other interesting stories and characters to talk about during fire and blood if you want to think about it fire and blood is like an outline of a tv show that george submitted and now they're going to make it so they have an opportunity to really take these snippets of characters these interesting seeds as he likes calling himself as a gardener and really growing them into their own things 
I would not be shocked if by the end of House of the Dragons run, if it makes it all the way they want it to, probably like five seasons, maybe six, maybe four or five. You're probably going four or five. If um if the Blackwoods aren't one of the more popular characters within the fandom, especially these particular ones. I mean, they'll never be at the probably won't be at the level of the Targaryens during this. Like obviously people are going to stand Damon and Rhaenyra and different members of House Valarian the whole way through, but the Blackwoods should give them a run for their money, especially among Stark fans, people that really like Northerners and they like the store, the Stark ethos and their personalities. Blackwoods are ready made to step into that role for them. So, you know, get in early, buy low on the Blackwoods. You, you won't, you will not be disappointed. I hope. So I think that's about it for today. We went over by a little bit. Thanks for everybody that showed up. Thanks for everybody that slammed the like button. Everybody that won t-shirts. So I think that's Guilty Undertaker. Danny said he was giving away. And who was the other person? Oh, Hightower Stands. I'm sorry. I forgot about Hightower Stands. Obviously, they're going to get a lot of people loving them. They... I totally missed out on the name. It was... Oh, J.S. Holgerson. He's the one who won earlier. So make sure you guys contact me off stream. I'll send you guys your code so you can pick up your stuff. Want to thank also my many lovely patrons. Recently released the chapter 13 of the Dying of the Light read through after a long break. I kind of explain why at the beginning of it. It's not, it was a very hard chapter for me to deal with and also to write about. I think, I think that comes through. It's actually not that long, but it's kind of. I don't know. You're, you're going to have to listen to it if you want to. That's available on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Joe Magician at the $5 and up level. Although there are a few free episodes, like one with Aziz uh, from History of Westeros was free, along with the one with Eliana and Michael from Maester Monthly. This one is also available to all patrons because it's usually $5 and up, but I felt bad about the weight. So that's when I put it in there. So yeah, if you want to support me, you can go there. Obviously, there's also PayPal and Super Chats and that kind of thing if you're feeling up to it. But, you know, don't really have to. If you just like and share and enjoy the streams, then that's really all I want. So thank you guys. Appreciate it. We'll see you again in two weeks. We're going to be coming back for another crack at House Blackwood because we're not done with them. We're going to be talking about the Blackfire Rebellions with how bo- focusing on the Blackwoods and the Brackens and how that really fuels it in a way that I don't think people are that tuned into. And then... Hopefully I'll be half the stream and the other half is we'll talk about the Blackwoods in A Song of Ice and Fire proper. So Lord Titus and his family, Jamie's journey to meet them, where they're going in the rest of the books. Thank you guys very, very much. All the links to the stuff is down in the description if you want to find stuff. I also make an audio version of this that I put out called The Wit and Wisdom of Joe Magician. You can find it on iTunes, you can find it on Spotify, you can find it anywhere. Everywhere and everywhere you can go find it if you want to. It's usually a lot shorter because I edit stuff out and I make, I like remove pauses and stuff like that. So this is going to be a two hour and 10 minute stream. It'll probably be down to like an hour 45 if you want to check that out. Or if you're listening to this on that audio stream, obviously you can watch them live with us on youtube.com slash showmagician. So anyways, make sure you guys email me for your free t-shirts and stuff like that. Hope you guys have a happy Saturday and I will see you 